And thank you for doing the Lord's work by uh, interviewing <laughs> all these people and bringing it out to a podcast. This is Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm Jeffrey Lin. I'm an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. I'm Greg Schell. I'm a law professor at the University of Iowa. Hey, Greg. Hey, Jeff. Today's show, we're previewing a special issue on urban economics and history, which is coming out in regional science and urban economics this year. This episode contains a series of short interviews with many of the contributors to this issue on a wide range of topics at the intersection of urban economics and history. It was a lot of fun to do these interviews. We talked to a lot of people, got a sense as to the breadth of the field. I'm really looking forward to the reaction to this quote-unquote asynchronous conference centered on this issue. This episode is part one of our three-part special series on urban economics and history. Subsequent episodes will feature many of the other contributors to this special issue of RSUE, including Bob Margo, Allison Scherzer, Ed Glazer, and Leah Brooks. This episode that you're about to hear features conversations with Walker Hanlon, Stefan Heblick, Martin Bosker, Noel Johnson, and Treb Allen. Enjoy. Greg, I've known you for a while, but I actually, and I know that you're interested in history, but I don't know why you're interested in history. So maybe you could tell us and tell the listeners a little bit about that. Well, I studied history in college and I do find it intrinsically interesting. But beyond that, I would say, you know, it gives us a sense of what's possible, the kind of rubber band nature of human civilization, where sometimes we do kind of constricting things, sometimes we do really expansive things. And you can find parallels throughout history to current challenges. Similarly, I would say, you know, current challenges sometimes feel unique to us, at least in the constitution of complexities that they present. But that's often not the case. So congestion, for example, you know, is a problem that not only predates cars, but predates motorized transportation. It's a problem in ancient Rome, and in any civilization that had any kind of density. And so it's interesting, but it's also useful to look at how they manage these problems and to think about what would be an updated version of that and would that work in our circumstances? Yeah, that's great. I like history because of the stories. <laughs> I like, you know, it's just interesting, right? It feels like, you know, we're understanding a little bit about what it means to be human, right? And through the stories of the past, right? Totally. So Jeff, I don't think I've ever pinned you down and asked you why you got into urban economics or how you chose urban economics? That's a good question. The answer of why I'm interested in history and why I'm interested in urban economics is actually kind of the same answer. My freshman year of college at Northwestern, I took actually a sequence of three classes with this historian named Henry Binford, who is a historian of actually 19th century suburbanization. And I signed up first for his freshman seminar, which was on urban anti-poverty crusades. And so this is like, we talked about a lot about Jane Addams and Hull House and the Great Society programs. That was my first experience with sort of urban history. After that experience, which I loved, I signed up for his two quarter sequence on the development of the modern American city. So that would have been 200 years of urban American history. I read Crabgrass Frontier and Death and Life of Great American Cities. And that kind of got me hooked, I guess. Current day motivation, place matters for people, right? Like the decisions about where we live and where we work affect our lives in a lot of different ways, you know, narrowly in terms of like, you know, how much we spend on housing and how much time we spend moving around. But they also affect our human experiences, right? Like who we work with, who we socialize with, what kinds of things we're able to consume. So, you know, that's what I would say today. Why is urban economics important and why studying cities is important? But it kind of started my freshman year of college. I think we've identified our common ancestor because I also took a 19th century urban history class. I guess we got into the 20th as well, but it had a heavy emphasis on that period with Kenneth T. Jackson, uh, uh, the author yeah. of yeah. Grass Frontier. Yeah, sure. And uh, I was a sophomore in college, and that was one class that led me to major in history. And I found it absolutely fascinating. And the relevance and importance to modern times was not difficult 
to discern. Well, next up is a series of interviews with some of the authors that have contributed to this special issue. Our first guests are Walker Hanlon and Stefan Hedlick. Walker is an associate professor at Northwestern University. Stefan is associate professor at the University of Toronto. Together, they've written an overview essay for the special issue called History of Urban Economics. So let me start with Stefan. Your overview essay starts with the question, why turn to history? So why should we turn to history in urban economics? We introduced a couple of potential ideas why we should turn to economic history. A broad scheme of things is that if we look at cities today, we probably want to understand where they're coming from, and history is answering this question. This is the short answer, and then we go a little bit more into detail and think about reasons what we can also learn from looking back in time and looking back in history, and where history is potentially an interesting research laboratory to answer questions that are relevant for today. We're trying to strike the balance between what we can learn and the external validity of what we learn. Walker, what would your answer to this question be? Why should urban economists be interested in history? Well, for me, I think one of the key aspects is that, you know, many of the key features of cities are changing slowly over time. You know, it takes a long time to build a new highway network or a rail network or a sewer system. Like these are long-term investments. The housing stock depreciates slowly. And so if we want to understand these longer processes of urban growth and urban change, then I think we need to take a historical perspective. And, you know, that combined with new methodological improvements in using historical data, have I think opened up lots of new interesting things that can be done using history to learn about urban economics. Stefan brought up learning from history. Every time period is different. Every situation is different. How much should it be the goal of historical research to make explicit predictions or understandings of the present day. You know, Jeff, I recently read a quote that is potentially related to Mark Twain, but I'm not sure. Some say it might be related to somebody else. And it says, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And I think this is pretty much how I want to think about this. I believe that if you look back in time, and strip things to the fundamentals, you can ask questions about the basic functionality about cities and about economies in more general terms. Once you start putting more detail on, you might find that history does not repeat itself and that today is a different time. But if I'm interested in general economic mechanisms, I find that history is really helpful for that. And oftentimes we are looking at interactions between actors today we often run into this problem that they're quite hard to disentangle, whereas if we go back in time, we find it easier to focus on one mechanism or to focus on one channel. And this is exactly what I believe history can provide to us. We can look at a simplified version of interactions that we want to analyze, and we can get some fundamental relationships out of that. So Walker, your last response was geared towards the idea of like what can urban economists learn from history, which is the question that I asked you. But let me turn that around a little bit. There's a separate community and a separate strand of the literature, which is economic historians interested in cities. Do you think there's a distinction between the economic history approach to cities and the urban economics approach to history? And if so, what is that distinction? I mean, I think of these as two communities who are interested in different questions. Historians are interested in understanding these historical processes and what happened in the past. And I think urban economists are more interested in taking those experiences and using them to better understand the trajectory of urban change and urban evolution in a longer perspective. And so I think that those are just two groups that are interested in slightly different questions, but using some of the same methodologies. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. So this special issue is huge, right? There's, I think, 16 individual articles, plus your overview essay, covering a wide range of topics, but also a wide range of approaches. So there's some theoretical contributions, some empirical contributions, case studies, methodological surveys, comparative essays. Stefan, maybe I'll ask you this question. What do you make of this sort of agglomeration of the wide degree of heterogeneity across the contributions of this issue? 
I guess it shows us that urban is becoming quite a general field that incorporates a lot of interesting questions. If I think about the special issue itself, I think when Walker and I started working on this overview article, we already recognized how much you can combine. And at some point, it became obvious that there's even a benefit to having additional authors look a little bit deeper into some of the topics that we're talking about here. If I think about both our paper and the special issue more general, I think the nice thing is that we can show methodologies that help us to cut new windows into the past. So we basically do review in this article briefly that um, it's not just archives that tell us about like data from the past and like registers that we can digitize. But the research focus has become much more broad. Like we can now look at maps and we can use recent developments in machine learning in order to make these maps accessible. We can add additional dimensions from consistent geography and geology attributes that we can relate back to the past. So we can cut all these windows. This is one part that we can see just from a methodological perspective. The next question is what types of economic models can we use in order to digest these data and how can we maybe also fill in Blanks that we have. And then once we have this methodology like set up and once we have the toolkit, we can then start thinking. And I think we kind of systematically approach this in three dimensions. One of them is what about between cities and how shall we think about the distribution of economic activity within a country? Then we focus a little bit more at research that looks within cities. And finally, we think a little bit more about the contribution of cities to overall national growth. And we believe that this is quite a nice way to systematically approach this broad field and put some structure on, which we initially do on a broader scale in this paper. And then in the special issue itself, people drill even deeper and provide more evidence to these different, let's say, subtitles. Yeah, that's great. Walker, last question to you. What is something interesting that you learned or discovered putting this essay together? I mean, for me, I think what was really fantastic was just to have an opportunity to step back and look across the breadth of work in this area and just to see how much sort of variety and creativity there is across this, what I think is a really, you know, interesting and rapidly growing strand of, of literature. Fantastic. Walker Hanlon, Stefan Heblick, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. Our guest is Martin Bosker. Martin is professor of international trade and development at Erasmus University, Rotterdam. His essay in this issue is called City Origins. Welcome, Martin. Thanks for the invitation. I'm happy to be here. So your article talks about city seeds. Can you explain what are city seeds? That's a good one. I think it's uh, generally defined. I refer to city seeds as the seeds of cities in the sense that what are locational characteristics? that increase the likelihood of a certain location developing into a city. For example, nice geographical features like maybe a hill overlooking the countryside, affordable place in a river, a nice natural harbor, which are all attractive places for people to start settlements that can also grow into cities. Basically. Yeah. Can you summarize what we know about the origins of cities? I know that's a big question, but maybe give our listeners some background in terms of what are some broad themes or broad understanding that we've arrived at in terms of the origins of cities? From the urban history literature, a lot has been said about this, basically. So many different characteristics have been mentioned as important in driving yeah. the location of large settlements or cities. Empirical evidence backing up these claims is not super, super rich yet, I would say. It's starting to come out more and more, also driven by better availability of data. So, for example, in Europe, where I've done some work, important insights are, first of all, that particular characteristics, for example, location favorable to water transport. This appears to have become more important over time in determining where larger settlements turn out to be located. Whereas during, let's say, the early Middle Ages, this was not yet that important. So that is, I think, one thing that, that the particular characteristics that are important for in determining the site of cities, they may differ over time, basically. So maybe that's kind of obvious, but we are getting better at identifying how they matter and when. So a lot more is known about what then determines subsequent variation in size once the cities are there. 
But when it comes to really identifying, okay, we have this kind of open space where there's not, not yet any cities which locations are most likely to become a city. There, I think it would be great if, you know, given recent developments in data availability, we could get more better empirical evidence into what are these important locational characteristics determining kind of the start of these cities or settlements. Yeah, that was a very good answer to a very unfair and overly broad question. So one thing that I was intrigued by was your mention and some citations to a literature in archaeology that contributes to this understanding of this question. You also talked about the importance of work of historians in this area. Do you have a favorite archaeology or historical contribution to this question that you'd like to share? I very much like the book by Henri Piren. It's about Europe, but actually it's a very nice urban history narrative about the original cities in Europe. And many of the things that he mentions there are kind of now shown in the data. <laughs> more <or> less. So, <laughs> yeah. Of course, he also based himself on data, but not on careful empirical exercises. But I find it sometimes quite striking that when you then do some careful empirical analysis, very often... Well, claims and statements that he carefully argues using narrative historical accounts turn out to be uh, just a case in point, basically. <laughs> so yeah. that's, uh, it's a nice book. Could you characterize the mode of inference that he's doing? Is he knitting together qualitative evidence? Is he looking at primary sources? What kinds of, how do you think he sort of constructed his theories? I think it's qualitative for sure. And here and there, there are some numbers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. But it's not like Bayros, for example, who Paul Bayros' book, and maybe many people will know a bit better. There's lots of numbers in there already. Right. In the book right. by Henri Piren, it's not full of numbers. It's more like a traditional, I would say, history book, kind of, where based on qualitative sources, contemporaneous evidence from the time, He's stitching together kind of an account of what he thinks are the most important drivers of city life, basically, in uh, medieval Europe, which is when, you know, cities really started to thrive. It's a very nice account to read. It also reads well. I think it's pretty old, but it reads pretty nicely as well. That's a great recommendation. The final thing I wanted to ask about, so I think you make an identification point or an inference point here in your essay, emphasizing the importance of analyzing places that didn't become cities. Can you expand on that a little bit for us? Why is that important? Why I think that is important is that if you don't have that information, you're looking basically at the sample of places that have been successful in becoming a city, right? So then, of course, what you could do is maybe use the timing of when these places turned into a city and identify what made places turn into a city at a particular point in time and identify stuff off of that. But for many of these locational characteristics, unless their importance maybe changes rapidly over time, this is not a very feasible strategy right? because it's really a particular natural characteristic that may be super important in driving why a certain location is chosen as a city site, whereas another is not. And it's not so much I mean, this variation of using the timing of when this place turned into a city, but it might not help you in answering the important questions, basically. If for the particular question you're asking, you can't use this timing, then I think it's crucially important to have these counterfactual sites that did not develop into a city. Kind of a super easy example to give is that now we maybe say location on a river is important, and we base this on places that, that actually all at some point turned into a city. <laughs> then what if all those places that are also on these maps are also all on rivers, right? Then we would maybe draw the wrong inference from this. I think in many cases, given the type of question asked, it's very important to have this information as well. Right, perfect. What's one thing that you're looking forward to that's on the frontier of this literature? So what I'm personally looking forward to is I hope that we will get evidence on this question from more parts of the world. I find that very interesting. Most of the work has focused on Europe. And, well, there's some scattered studies, some of the work that you've done on other parts of the world. But I think more and more of these archaeological sites are being also digitized. They digitize it in a way that you can actually use it and also start looking for, okay, we know a lot about this in Europe, 
but how did it happen in other places? Is it similar or not? If not, why not? I think that is something that I'm looking forward to, and I'm hoping that will be done on this by people with good access to these types of data. So that is number one. And another, what I enjoy a lot in recent years is just the sheer availability of many detailed geographical data data sources. So lots of detail, many of it satellite-based, where we compared to, let's say, 10, 15 years ago, we have so much more information on geographical features of the landscape so that we can look not just at, am I located on a river, but maybe also, you know, I'm located on a river, but it's also affordable place because I know the river depth at that place now from these novel sources. So I think this sheer explosion of info on alleged city location drivers is exciting uh, and it allows us to do much more. That's great. A lot to look forward to. Thanks for joining us, Martin. I really appreciate your time and participating in this conversation. Yeah, thanks very much. It was a pleasure. Noel Johnson is Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University. His essay is co-authored with Remy Jedwab and Mark Koyoma, and it's called Medieval Cities Through the Lens of Urban Economics. Welcome, Noel. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. What does urban economics have to say about medieval cities? That's a good question. One of the things that I enjoyed writing the survey paper for was that it really reminded me how much doing economic history can both speak to urban economic theory, but also how you can just answer interesting historical questions at the same time, which is, of course, what all economic historians strive to do, hopefully. So one of the things that urban economics, you know, helps us understand in the history of medieval cities, it helps gives us structure to thinking about, for example, is it history or is it geography, you know, which is driving the distribution of economic activity. Obviously, urban has been developing that story for quite a while in a very effective way. And one of the things that we think we see in the data in medieval cities and the history is that uh, geography mattered a great deal, as one might expect. But furthermore, by studying the history, if one's lucky, one can also come across some nice natural experiments that can help us tease out how prominent different aspects of the theory are applying at different times. One that Remy, Mark, and I have mercilessly exploited over and over again is uh, the shock of the Black Death, which happened between 1347 and 1352. And for the listeners who probably, unfortunately, nowadays, many more people know more about the Black Death than they used to because of its analogs that are going on. But For those who don't know the background, between 1347 and 1352, about 40% of the population of Europe died. Remy, Mark, and I have built on the work of some epidemiologists and historians to develop a database of mortality rates at the city level. And we've worked really hard to try to convince our referees that those mortality rates at the city level were random, right? You know, they're not correlated with much at all. And so that then gives us a probe, you know, to test various theories about, for example, well, did cities recover to where they were after the Black Death shock? If that's not the case, then what were the factors that contributed to their recovery or to their lack of recovery? And one of the things we find in that research and we mentioned in the survey paper is that place with good geography tended to recover more quickly, specifically if you were on a coast or if you had uh, relatively high soil quality or potential rather. And if you were on a river, you know, as well, you had quick recovery. Now, geography wasn't the only thing. There was also some, if you will, man-made endowments that mattered a great deal. Probably one of the most powerful one being if you were a member of a trade network like the Hanseatic League, which was a network of trading cities centered around the Baltic and Northern Europe. So that was really good for you (laughs) in terms of recovery. So that's my one way of answering that question, but yeah, there are many others. There's a couple of threads that I want to pick up on in your response. So one is maybe kind of directly follows from the end of your response, which is how should we think about why you're urbanized in the Middle Ages? And in particular, what kinds of benefits did people perceive in living in cities 
Nowadays, we sort of think about knowledge spillovers and labor market pooling as common reasons why people want to live in cities or live in urbanized areas. What was the same or what was different in the Middle Ages in Europe? So that's another really good question. And I'll take the liberty of rephrasing it slightly. One big question that's out there that I don't think we fully have a handle on is why, for example, you know, cities in the Middle East were large relative to cities in Europe for a great deal of time. So right up until around the 11th century or so, when basically Middle Eastern cities started to stagnate around the 11th century, whereas European cities steadily were growing, right? As both the size of the cities and also the overall urbanization rates, right? You know, in Europe. So then one way of thinking about, I think, what your question is like, you know, why is it right? <laughs> that in Europe, urbanization was attractive, right? You know, and it, it flourished, whereas it stagnated in other locations, particularly in the Middle East. And to answer that question, I mean, I ultimately think it comes down to institutional explanations. I'll talk about somebody else's work. So one place where we are getting some traction on a possible institutional explanation for this divergence would be the work of Eric Cheney, who, again, we mentioned in the survey paper. Eric's research on this is also a great example of what new methods are bringing us in order to answer some of these questions. So he basically scraped the Harvard Library, I think, as well as some other research libraries to get all of the titles being published in Europe and in the Middle East, right, <laughs> over yeah. a long period of time. And if you focus just on the Middle East, you know, he figures out, well, which of the writings are science versus other things, like religion most prominently. And he can show from there that there was a shift around the 11th century in that in the Middle East, manuscripts were not being published on science topics, right, starting around that time. Mm -hmm. And he links that to something called the Sunni revival, which was religious elites were gaining political power, and they were shifting the curricula taught in schools at the time away from science topics towards religious topics. That did not happen in Europe, right? You know, but it did happen in the Middle East. So one reason why that didn't happen in Europe, now that gets to very complicated questions, right? You know, like as well, Mark Koyama and I have written a book called Persecution and Toleration, The Long Road to Religious Freedom which deals specifically with the emergence in Europe of states that were not aligned, like, you know, with religion in the same way that they were in the Middle East. And I think that offers some explanation to it. But part of it also is probably related to the competition, you know, between cities that also existed, generating a beneficial environment for growth. I'm not sure if that's exactly what you wanted me to get at, but you can narrow it down for me if you want. That was a great response. I wanted to pick up on another thread, which was there's a lot of economic history questions about the Middle Ages and a lot of economic history work. And obviously, urbanization has long been recognized as an important part of the story about the divergence of Europe. I guess my question here is, I see the survey that you've written and the other work that you've done with Mark and Remy as trying to inject or trying to apply some of the sort of the models and the frameworks from urban economics into this period. What I would like to know is from your perspective, what, how much traction is that getting in economic history? You know, what has the reception been? And what are the opportunities for more of that cross-field spillovers? So that's a great question. And I guess the short answer is not as much traction as I wish, right? <laughs> 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 because, of course, it's always hard to publish papers. And it's particularly difficult, I think, to get the audience right when one's doing the economic history in the way that we are, you know, trying to explicitly link it to people in urban, you know, what they might care about, you know, they might not care necessarily about Jewish communities and cities, like, you know, during this period, but they do care about human capital spillovers. So we try to link it to both audiences. Of course, the difficulty is that you don't get to choose your referees and depending, oftentimes, in our case, it's too much attempting to link it to the urban theory we mm -hmm. find, right, you know, yeah. and, and not enough of identification or history or whatever it is the person wants in there. But sometimes it's the opposite, right? You know, and so there is this tightrope that one is walking. 
But my personal belief, right, is that economic history and economic historians should be both concerned about collecting the data, telling a historical story. But at the end of the day, most, not all of us, but many of us, probably most of us are economists. So we should be speaking to some theoretical question that yeah. is out there in order to link it to the broader audience. So I say uh, tongue in cheek that the traction, maybe it's not been enough and that you have to walk this tightrope. But I should also acknowledge that among economic historians, and you can also see the age gradient, right, you know, like with younger ones, even more so, this is the way <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> done, right? You know, yeah. that, and the field for better or for worse, in my opinion, it was about a good thing, right? You know, like, this process started a while ago, right? You know, yeah. back when I was in graduate school with Asimo, Johnson and Robinson, right? Yeah. You know, taking the history and then linking it explicitly to yeah. a more mainstream, like, you know, economic ideas. So that's maybe not specifically about urban, but the thing that's caused urban to be popular as well is that, I mean, when I was in grad school, you, you struggled to find right-hand side variables to put into a regression or anything like this. But with the advent of, you know, GIS and our ability to scan a map, right, you know, and then also the kind of things that Eric is doing, Eric Cheney that I just right. mentioned, where you can use modern machine learning stuff, you know, to, and you can scrape and do all these things. There's now a huge amount of data and the ability to shift from talking about a unit of analysis being, say, the state or a polity of some right. size to two cities has been just incredible. And so urban's obviously intricately related to that process. It seems like one important factor here that should appeal to both economics historians and urban economists is the data, right? Like if oftentimes what's preserved after a thousand years, well, we kind of have decent data on where cities are and the spatial structure of the economy. And that's something that is pretty clearly linked to development. It's also the core of our economics too, right? Is like, where do people right. live? One of the great redeeming virtues or characteristics of cities is that they don't move. I mean, they, yeah. they, they grow bigger and smaller, but I don't, I have to worry a great deal about administrative borders when I'm talking about something like France, because they change, right? <laughs> you know, right. A lot, but I'm, pretty sure Lyon is where Lyon is. And so when I'm trying to do something with that, whether it be embedded in a transportation network to calculate market access or something like that, or whatever it is, it's just much easier to work with. Cities are a natural unit you know, to look at for many problems. Not all of them, right? You know, Because you know people move across the cities and sometimes the effects are happening at some higher level of aggregation, right? One being, for example, Again, the shock of the Black Death, it raises wages, but people move. And so you kind of expect those wages to be going up all over the place, you know, when that happened. And that has implications for things like the Voth and Voigtlander story about non-homothetic preferences and increasing urbanization from the Black Death mortality and so forth. Yes, yeah, cities are great. <laughs> <laughs> One thing which would really make it even greater is that people, I say people, I mean, if I could do it myself, I would, but we need better data on these city populations. The Byroth data set, which everybody knows about, and it kind of circulates in a folk format. Everybody uses it in their papers, but very few people interrogate its origins in the way that we probably should. I'm not super worried about it, but it could be improved upon, I believe. And actually, and even a fortiori, like even more importantly, we need something like Byrock for where other areas of the world. It shocks me that we don't know what happened in China with regards to, say, the plague. We know very little. Yeah. And I ask my Chinese friends, graduate students or other scholars, is this just because I don't read the right things or they're not translated? It seems to not be that case. They just don't have the population data in a way that we do a disaggregated, let I say we, in the way that it exists for Europe. So things like what Bosker and I believe it was Ben Zanden was on this, and I apologize if I'm getting another co-author, when they extended Byrock more or less into the Middle East, that was a, I think it's a restart paper, that was a really helpful thing to do. But we don't know about, we know very little about Africa, we know very little about India going that far back, we know very little about China or basically anywhere else, right? You know, yeah. it'd be great to have more information.
Yeah. So there's a lot of opportunity <laughs> you know, yeah, out there yeah. for somebody yeah. to do work on that. That just seems like an evergreen economist ass. More data, <laughs> more data. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But this is kind of, I mean, China has a very advanced administrative state, right? right? You know, like, you know, from very far back. So you would expect, I would expect that there would be more information that apparently either the incentives aren't in place to put in the format that we need, or it really just doesn't exist for some reasons that I don't comprehend. Yeah. Well, let's hope that an enterprising PhD student listening <laughs> can figure that out for us. And actually, this comes back to when I was talking about what economic historians do. And part of what we do is we create data mm-hmm. sets, right? And part of what we do is we analyze those data sets, hopefully to answer some question that's of broad interest, right? The incentives to do the kind of paper that directly speaks to, say, urban economics and that you can then get into a top-tier journal because it's general interest, the incentives to do that are often not consistent with the incentives we need to create in order to generate these large data sets because that's its own thing. That takes a huge amount of effort and time. And there's not always a clever machine learning shortcut or something like that to take to do it. And so that is an issue. And that's one reason why economic historians, to the extent that we gatekeep, there is an effort to make sure that our PhD students who decide that they're going to spend the first 10 years of their careers doing that sort of job can still get tenure. Yeah, this is something that I admire about economic history compared with the other subfields in economics that economic historians care way more about measurement and interrogating measurement than than most other economists. That's probably fair. But then we also, I think, had a very good, like a lot of people, the corrective of getting more of the causal techniques from labor economics forced upon us created a lot of disgruntlement, but that was good too, because <laughs> that kind of measurement is also very important. I think that's all the time we have, Noel. Thanks for joining oh, okay. us. Okay. All right. Um, well, thank you for having <laughs> me. I had a good time. Yeah. Treb Allen is a professor at Dartmouth College. He has an essay called Persistence and Path Dependence, a Primer, co-authored with Dave Donaldson. Welcome, Treb. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. We're also going to take this opportunity to talk about a companion piece that I wrote with Ferdinand Rauch in the same issue called What Future for History Dependence in Spatial Economics. Both papers are on the topic of path dependence or history dependence of spatial structure. One way of describing path dependence in this context is that temporary local shocks, like say a disaster or maybe like a local place-based policy, might have persistent or permanent effects on say, city sizes or the composition of economic activity in a place. And this idea of path dependence is closely related to the idea that there might be important externalities or spillovers in location choices. The value of a place depends on your neighbors, how many people and businesses are located nearby. A good example for this here is the superior productivity benefits that might be offered by big cities because of agglomeration economies. And if those externalities are strong enough, if, for example, the only thing people care about is whether they're close to other people, then maybe agglomeration could be located in any place. So maybe a persistent response to a temporary shock reflects these externalities or spillovers and location choice at work. That's the background of the topic. Trev, let me turn it to you. How would you characterize your work and research in this area? Yeah, I think you did a great job summarizing the topic. I think the question is a really interesting one, which is when does history matter and how does it matter? I like to distinguish between, I guess, three closely related but distinct concepts. One is multiplicity. And so you can imagine that if there's some historical accident and the world is subject to multiplicity, that essentially means anything could happen. We really have no way of predicting using our theory what's going to happen tomorrow from the shock. And I want to contrast that multiplicity with, I guess, first and foremost, path dependence. My interpretation of path dependence is something where you can predict what's going to happen tomorrow, but if you hit play on your economy, where you're eventually going to end up might differ depending on the shock. So you were on one particular path towards some sort of equilibrium, some sort of steady state equilibrium. Now I've been hit with a shock and now I go to to an alternative steady state equilibrium. So it's not multiplicity because you can still predict what the economy is going to do from one day to the next but where the economy can eventually evolve to might be distinct. The third concept I want to distinguish from multiplicity and path dependence is persistence. 
And persistence is just the idea that a shock, however temporary, might have very long run impacts on the economy. So the economy is always going to evolve to the same long run steady state equilibrium. And there's not multiplicity. So you can hit play and you know what's going to happen tomorrow. But temporary shocks, maybe small temporary shocks, can still have very, very long run implications for the economy. And then I think the question is that you posed, Jeff, is exactly right. Well, how can we tell what kind of world we're living in? Is it one where there's multiplicity? We have no predictive power. What's going to happen from one day to the next? Is it one where we have the potential of permanent impacts of temporary shocks because of path dependence? Or one that we are always going to converge to the same place in the long run, but these shocks can be very, very persistent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One reason why this distinction is very important is because we want to know whether we're able to predict what's going to happen and what kinds of conditions under which we can sort of be more confident that we're able to predict the future evolution of the economy. I think that's exactly right. So the, the goal of this primer and this primer is itself more of an advertisement for the full complimentary <laughs> paper that's out there. And I recommend that your listeners go and look. It's an MBR working paper right now is try to specify what those conditions are. Like when are we in a world of multiplicity? When are we in a world of path dependence? And when are we a world of persistence? And it turns out Maybe not that so surprisingly, is these things are very closely linked and they're essentially like degrees of importance. So like the same sort of parameters, depending on the values that they can take, can move you from multiplicity to path dependence, from path dependence to persistence or the other direction, depending on, I guess, the sign of these, these parameters. As you hint yeah. to that, it's really all about these agglomeration spillovers. So how much does my benefit, either in terms of how productive I am or in terms of like how much I enjoy living in a place, depend on other people's choices? And both contemporaneously, like how many people are living around me right now, and historically, how many people were living around where I'm living now a generation ago. This is the key distinction here in your work, right? We want to be careful to distinguish between what you guys call historical spillovers and mm -hmm. contemporaneous spillovers. That is spillovers from the past, legacies of past investments in places versus mm -hmm. sort of the contemporaneous same period benefits that I get from interacting with other people or other businesses in the present day. I think that's exactly right. There's lots of real world examples of this. So I don't live in New York. I live in very rural New Hampshire, but I'll use rural New Hampshire as an example. One nice thing about living in Hanover is the investments that have been made by previous generations. The college was founded sometime in the 1700s, and there's lots of amenities that come from the college. Even if everyone left tomorrow and it was just me, I would still have those benefits. And so that creates a force for trying to keep me here. The amenities are higher because of previous generations than they would otherwise would have been. And you're exactly right. Like the distinction between multiplicity and say persistence or path dependence depends crucially on like our forces contemporary or our forces historical. You can get situations where you don't have multiplicity when the contemporaneous forces maybe give you a unique path forward. But you can have path dependence, you can have multiple steady states when the historical spillovers are such that they're sufficiently strong that wherever people were yesterday makes me more likely to want to be there. Let me put in a plug here about terminology. Please. So I like how you guys describe these because it's very descriptive, right? Historical spillovers and contemporaneous spillovers. I like yeah. that. I think there's another set of terms that we could rescue from the literature, kind of clean up from the way that they've been commonly used. So here, I want to talk about the terms from William Cronin's Nature's Metropolis. Yeah. So he yep, talks yep. about first nature and second nature. Mm -hmm. And first nature is literally like nature, right? Like mountains, rivers, oceans. I think we understand that. And people use that correctly in the literature. Second nature, I think there's a little bit of confusion here. And if you read the discussion in Nature's Metropolis, second nature is explicitly about these historical spillovers that you guys are describing about. It's about mm -hmm. the fixed investments that people made in the past that are still around in the same place today. So these are things like railroad lines and infrastructure and those kinds of factors. So I think there's a tendency in the literature to use second nature to describe this bundle of both historical spillovers and contemporaneous spillovers. Yeah. I think actually that comes from Krugman. So if you look at Krugman's work in 1991 and 1993, uh -huh. he draws a lot on Cronin's Nature's Metropolis. 
Yep. And he's the one who bundles all those things together under second nature. And it makes sense for his writing in the period because those are static models. There's nothing in the model that distinguishes a historical spillover from a contemporaneous spillover. Anyway, so this is just a plug for trying to rescue that useful distinction you guys are making. I like that a lot. And we probably then need another term for the contemporaneous spillovers. This is my first foray into a dynamic model. My previous work had been static models. And I had sort of thought of the second nature as not only the spillovers, but also what would be present even in the absence of spillovers, like the yeah. like interactions between people, that, you know, the market access terms, things like this that are... Right. You don't need agglomeration forces directly to still be part of that. Somehow ah, it would be nice okay. to distinguish between like the market forces and the spatial yeah. linkages through market forces yeah. to the contemporaneous agglomeration and dispersion forces to the, I guess what we're calling the second nature historical. That's fair. This distinction is important. Urban economists tend to think, I think that these contemporaneous spillovers are, I think opinions vary about their quantitative size, but we think that at least some of them exist, right? From things in the labor market or knowledge spillovers. Mm-hmm. How do we know we're in the parameter space where sort of the model predictions are sharp? How can we rule out the sort of extreme multiplicity where anything could happen? That's a great question. And one thing I liked about reading your article is I think you're pointing correctly that these parameters probably aren't necessarily global parameters, that they're probably setting dependent to a certain extent. You're right, I think, that loosely speaking and very loosely speaking, I'm going to summarize our results as essentially saying, as long as the contemporary spillovers are net dispersive, meaning that all else equal, including both reasons for my effects on my own productivity and effects on my own sort of amenity value of living in a place, all else equal, it's nice to sort of spread out, then you're not in a range where multiplicity can occur. So then you're in a range where we can predict what's going to happen tomorrow. Right. And I think... While these parameters are going to depend on the particular context you're looking at, and as you mentioned in your paper, the scale you're looking at, typically we're pretty safe in this front. So like people disagree on what these parameter values are, but the fact of the matter is the more people who try to live in some place, the more, for example, the cost of living there is going to be driven up because there's only a fixed amount of land and buildings higher and taller, it becomes increasingly costly. That force alone can dominate any sort of reasonable estimates of the fact that like you and I are together, we're much more productive because we can bounce ideas off of each other. That's loosely where the parameter space needs to be. I think if you got 100 urban economists into a room, I'd say more than 90 would agree that we're in that space. We'll have to do that at the next (laughs) conference. I'm sympathetic to the view that there's a lot of situations we can't say something confidently. I tend to believe that for the questions that you and Dave have written about in terms of regional spatial structure and city sizes, I feel like this is something that I'm pretty convinced that this is the right modeling approach. Mm -hmm. In my essay with Ferdinand, we kind of try to pull in some of these other traditions into this question. So like you could think of this literature on sorting patterns within cities and Mm -hmm. tipping and racial dynamics of neighborhoods Mm -hmm. as kind of like taking kind of the same sort of structures in the back of your mind for thinking about how to model this. I think maybe there's more potential for multiplicity in those kind of very local interactions. I agree with that for a number of reasons. One is, I think, as I mentioned before, the value these parameters take and the economic mechanisms that you're thinking about are a function of spatial scale. And so like you're just thinking of fundamentally different economic interactions when you're thinking of how people interact across neighborhoods within a city versus how cities interact across the country. The two is, is I think that by introducing multiple types of agents, when you're starting to think about sorting, that changes the model a lot, the structure and the equilibrium properties of the model. So because you're here, I'll give you a pitch. We had a recent paper with Costas Arkalakis and Jingling Li where we go through and actually extend some of the mathematical results that are underpinning what I was doing with Dave Donaldson to think about in a city economy with many different types of agents where potentially the spillovers, the agglomeration forces across agents depend on their types. You get a condition that mathematically looks, has sort of the same mathematical structure, but this idea of like multiplicity becomes more possible is formalized, I guess. So you can actually see that. It's all about the largest eigenvalue of a matrix. And now like the (laughs) diagonal elements, the matrix are now potentially positive or negative. And so that can change the spectral radius. But anyway, all this is to say is the math, actually your intuition, I think it coincides really well with the math that by introducing multiple types of agents, 
and those types might have cross-type spillovers, you can get multiplicity in new ways that maybe aren't so important at the regional level where those type spillovers aren't so large. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'll look forward to saying that. Let me finish with a question about welfare. So you guys, in your conclusion, you refer to this classic paper by Jim Rauch, does history matter only when it matters little? I think the question is like, obviously, some people will care about where economic activity is located, right? Landowners care. But as a society, should we care about whether or not one place is the center of activity versus another? Yeah, that's something that I think is it's such a poignant quote. And we struggled with this paper for a long time trying to like, Let's try to formalize that. To what extent does the underlying first nature geography of a space determine the extent to which there can be welfare differences, you know, determine the extent to which the particular path of history has welfare consequences? It seems right to say that if all locations are identical in first nature space, then maybe we don't really care if agglomeration occurs in region A versus region B. But, you know, once there's heterogeneity in first nature terms, Maybe we do care. Maybe that history can actually have important welfare consequences. The tricky thing and the thing that we struggled with and the thing that I think is still a very interesting research question with a lot more to be done is, you know, the more heterogeneous the space is, the more likely it is that there's just one unique equilibrium that can be sustained given that heterogeneity. There's this tension. When everything's perfectly flat, we don't really care about the welfare consequences of history because, yeah, history might matter in determining where things happen, but they're all the same, so it doesn't matter. But if the world is not flat, if it's very rough and bumpy and there's mountains and valleys and things like this, then we really care about where people live. But maybe history doesn't matter in determining that. If it's so bumpy, yeah. maybe history just doesn't have an impact. And so trying to understand that trade-off, I think, is a great question, and I don't know the answer to it. Yeah, I agree with what you guys said, that this is one of the most important open yeah. questions in historical urban regional economics. All right. Thanks, Trev. Thanks for joining us. This is great, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me. And that's our show. Thanks for listening to part one of our special series on urban economics and history. Special thanks to the participants featured on this episode, Walker Hanlon, Stefan Heblick, Martin Bosker, Noel Johnson, and Trev for Greg Schill, I'm Jeff Lynn. Our producer is Skylar Palace. Our theme music is by Alexander Koltsov. Additional sound by Inspector J. Check the show notes for links to the articles we discussed on the show. And let us know what you thought on Twitter. The show's handle is at Density Speaking. Greg is at Greg underscore Schill. And I'm at Jeff Harlan. If you don't already, please subscribe to Density Speaking wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a second to rate and review the show as well. It helps other listeners discover the show. Finally, the views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated.